Welcome to Chinuch Today with Rabbi Yerachmiel Garfield, where we highlight innovative ideas and inspiring people from the world of Chinuch. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chinuch Today podcast. This is Yerachmiel Garfield, and I'm excited to introduce to you to an extremely special educator who is actually in Eretz Yisrael across the pond, across the uh, great ocean of the Atlantic. And he uh, lived in Houston for a number of years as a head of school, of another school here in Houston, and we became good friends. And I sort of lost track of what he's been up to since he's gone back to Eretz Yisrael, where he's from. And learning about what he's up to and understanding it really is a great example of why I started the Chinuch Today podcast, because what you are going to hear is pure innovation. It's an idea that a problem that needed to be solved. You'll be shocked to hear that the Israeli government is funding this initiative because they want to help the Jews of the diaspora, which is sort of a different uh, model. Usually we feel we're sending a lot of resources over to Israel. In this case, it's the example of the opposite, where the Israeli government and the Ministry of the Diaspora said, how can we help Klai Yisrael in the diaspora? And they came up with this idea, and they found Rabbi Carmel, Rabbi Aroni Carmel, who is the CEO of Talent Educators, which is an organization which helps place educators, Jewish educators around the world and in the harder places to match Jewish educators with schools. So that's a problem that's uh, certainly popular. You know, the, the teacher crisis, the great resignation how do we find teachers? Sort of interesting, last year at the Tarmacera Convention, I was asked to chair a conversation about how to find all teachers, and the conversation really became focused on MORAs, and there was a lot of passion, a lot of energy. Part of the issue was certainly, at least in the firmer schools, the pay for teachers for MORAs was not competitive at all. And so as a result of that meeting, there was a report shared with the Vadra Shivas of Tarmasora, and that ended up with the result of not only significantly $25 million or so being raised and then being given out to schools that have given significant raises to their moras, but a lot more training, engagement, um, programs in a high school where they high schools where they go in and try to engage the girls in a younger age to experiment with teaching and other initiatives that Tarmasora was doing. I know that there are other organizations also trying to address this need. And this year in the Tarmasar Convention, I was asked to talk about getting great Rebbeim to move out of town. That it's not just the Moras, but it's even the Rebbeim who in the past have been less of a challenge. Also getting them to be motivated and to be focused on the value of moving out of town and being involved in Chinuch. Sort of a dual problem because Chinuch in general, education in general is down as a field. I was at a presentation put on by the consortium this summer, and the main speaker was a non-Jewish man from ISM, which is a very professionally run support organization for private schools. And he said that across the country, all uh, educational programs are down 30% in terms of applications. So that just tells you a very clear trend about the interest in education across the board. And specifically in the Jewish world, I know that Jewish programs of study where they teach Jewish educators are also down in their enrollment. I had the great success of teaching in a collaborative program between John Hopkins University and Neri Israel, where we provided masters, John Hopkins masters in education to future Jewish educators, of which I hired two of those wonderful educators in my own school. And that program went on for nearly 10 years. It was a two-summer program where I was an adjunct and um, the last few years, they just haven't had enough students. So that's another indicator. In the early years, we had 18, 20 participants, and it just went down. And they have a minimum number that they haven't been able to meet. I know also Eshtas in Lakewood was having trouble filling their numbers. And I believe Rebellia Brunley spoke about it at one of the conventions, how, you know, what a sad situation that is. And we need to really think about the messages we're giving about education, etc. But this interview is about someone who used technology, innovation, strategy to really address this problem, not so much in the Tarmasora schools, but in the broader schools across the country and in other places that are harder to find Jewish educators. So this is a great example that I wanted the podcast 
to facilitate, which is giving people who wouldn't know about Rabbi Aroni Carmel and wouldn't know about talent educators and hearing what ideas he has come up with. And hopefully that will spark some thought and some innovation in different areas that wouldn't have heard of it and see what we could take from Rabbi Carmel's platform and bring it to the broader Orthodox Jewish community. So please enjoy this wonderful interview with a very special educator, Rabbi Aroni Carmel. Welcome to another episode of Chinuch Today. And we're very excited because this is the first time we are reaching across the ocean to Eretz Yisrael to welcome a very special person who runs a very special program. Rabbi Aroni Carmel is visiting us and he is the director. We'll hear exactly his role of talent educators. Welcome, Aroni. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, we'll just in full disclosure, we're old friends. We work together in Houston as colleagues running different schools here. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours and thrilled to hear what you're up to. So we're going to get into the history of it and how you got to it, etc. But tell us, Bikitsur, in simple terms, what do you do every day? Talent Educators is a project uh, funded by the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs. And uh, our main goal is to help with what seems to be like the word in the street. Everyone is talking about that the crisis of shortage of teachers, of Jewish educators. Absolutely. And, and so we, in a very nutshell, we profile physicians and institutions in our uh, database. We recruit educators and also create a profile in our uh, system. Once we have these two uh, dynamic databases, positions and people, we, uh, we try to do meaningful matches. Once we do that, we are very concerned by the statistics that the research shows over and over again about anywhere between 30 and 50% of educators leaving the field within the first five years. Wow. And so once we place them, we don't just wish them the best of luck and, and never see them again, but we do what we can to support them in their role. And the way we do that, we come up with a personalized training and mentoring program. We map and keep mapping many, many different partners who do trainings in different areas and can mentor. And for each individual that we place, based on our vetting and based on what we identify as their strengths and weaknesses and in conversation with the school, we come up with what do they need, not a generic training. One need like help with curriculum. Someone else needs help with uh, communication, technology, classroom management, you name wow. it. And every placement gets a different plan and a different mentor that's going to meet with them for a full year, on a weekly basis, help them in their work. Unbelievable. Wow, that is really special. I have to tell you, just listening to that, really, it's it's inspiring how you've taken so many of the critical pieces and put them together to solve a real problem. So now we're going to step back in history, and let's hear how you got to this. So you grew up in Israel, correct? So I grew up in Israel. I went to different uh, yeshivas, uh, including Merkel Kazarav in Jerusalem. And I'm working in education for about 25 years. I've been teaching in different institutions, and most of the year I was in different uh, leadership positions. I came to Houston in 2006. I had a teacher, I'd like a shaliach, for two years. And then I was promoted to be the Judaic Studies principal of, of, for the law school. So two years became three years, and four years, and five years. And moved back to Israel, and then was recruited to come back, be the head of school for another four years. So spent almost a decade in Houston, Texas. That's why I met a very lovely guy, which wow. is you. You know, we won the World Series this year. I hope you're you're following the Astros, though. I try to keep up. Not always successful. Okay, right? well, have a little nachat. Oh, when did you know you wanted to go into Chinuch? Did you have like an early influence that? Did you know right away? I assume you did Sava. Did you do Sava? Yes, I went. Uh, yeah, I did. I went to uh, Infantry's uh, Givati Brigade. Okay. But I, I knew I want to be a teacher from a very early stage, probably seventh or eighth grade. Really? I was so uh, inspired by my own rabbis who made a tremendous impact on me. In fact, when I was in seventh grade, I had a Chabad Rebbe. Every word he said, I was I was attracted to. And uh, he changed many ways how I think about things. And uh, I mean, he taught us here and there Gemara, but mostly Hasidus and, and different... Uh, Are you still in touch with him? Unfortunately, he passed away. But for many, many years, I, I remember his, probably the first um, teacher that got me to consider my Judaism in a more serious, non-childish way, really to go deeper. Oh. And then uh, the following rabbis as well. I mean, I had always a really good relationship with my, my rabbis. And I realized, why wow, you can make such an impact on a young adult, a young kid and then young adult. And yeah, I, I want to be something like that. And I was uh, I was a counselor in, in the youth movement in Israel. And 
I guess I was influential in a way. Uh, one of the parents accused me that his kid went to a yeshiva because I was so influential and uh, the danger. It's it's a work hazard. If you're too good, you know, people people get nervous from that. You have to find the right balance. But, uh, yeah, I'm very passionate about. Uh, of course, uh, obviously, it needs to be done in a certain way. Not not God forbid, brainwash things. But right. uh, if you, uh, I think if you try to be authentic, and if you believe in what you do, and then uh, I think that can speak more than anything you can ever say. Beautiful. And did you ever know that you were going to think about coming to America? Like, why did you spend so much time in America? Was that a plan? It just happened? America for me was like beyond the moon. I mean, I heard there's a place called America. I had no family, no connections. It, you know, it was kind of a vague, the Americans. My wife has some family in, in the States. And I, when we got married, I, I started to know Jewish Americans. And uh, it was a good experience. Uh -huh. But uh, also, uh, it was very interesting. My wife and I were very surprised to discover we had both separately a dream which is to go on shlichut go on emissary and make some impact and i thought it was my dream she thought it was her dream so he said why don't we do a joint dream <laughs> and we went to some course by the organization of amiel also uh associated with nerlef many many communities came to israel to interview us from almost all over the globe not just us all the participants and our family in houston said we'll let you uh, play the game that you kind of uh the decision-making process, do the game, but we're telling you, you're coming here. And that's what happened. We we end up in Houston. I knew not, I barely knew there's a place called Houston, let alone uh, where is it or what is it. And I just remember, um, I remember um, sitting on the airplane in Tel Aviv. And for what, whatever reason, before the airplane takes off, the first thing that came in my mind was the Rashi on the beginning of Parashat Korach. And Rashi says, Korach was a smart man. What was that silly thing that came into his mind? I just said, what am I doing? Taking my wife, my three children to where? Where to? I don't even know what's, what's, what's going to happen. It was the Chabad Rebbe that influenced you to go on Shlichut. For sure. Absolutely. For sure. No I guess I was, unconsciously I was. You're lucky you didn't end up in uh, Vermont or North Dakota. <laughs> okay, beautiful. So, so when you finished your Shlichut, after many years, you were here, a very successful head of school. I can attest to that. And then it was time to go back. Did you know what you were going back to do? Or did you, like many great Americans making Aliyah, just jump into the deep end and hope you could pay the rent? I think interesting. You know, when we moved back, this was after 20 years being in education, working very hard, definitely ahead of school. It's a pretty in intense job. And I said, you know, maybe it's time for me to just relax a little bit. You know, as an Israeli, you know, uh, Israeli teacher, they get like a sabbatical year. You save money and you can take a year off. And so I did. Wait, they and gave I, you credit for the time you spent here? They did, no. By the time when I was in Israel, I would just, uh, you know, they deduct from my own salary and they put uh -huh. it aside in a fund. Oh, really? It waits for you. Oh, yeah. really? That, wow. That's like, uh, yeah, that's like every teacher in Israel, if you want, about 12% of your salary is is a sign after six or seven years to get a side you can take a year off and your salary well, so we just uh, as an aside do you think that that's a healthy practice that as someone who's lived in both places that the world the Chinook world would benefit from implementing because as a head of school you can imagine i'm thinking for me it's awesome but like if i had to replace my teachers like that for a year i don't even know how to do that you need a challenge to be honest I never thought about that. The first time in that you, someone asked me about that, I think you can divide the teacher into two groups. One group is just can't wait to go on their sabbatical. And on your sabbatical, you're eligible to take courses, whatever you want to learn. And that's also paid as part of the package. And some people say, no, I mean, I'm not tired and I'd rather save that money for other things. And they, they can work like for 20, 30, 40 years without never touching it. It's kind of wait for their retirement. So it's kind of two shitot here. Got it. Two methods. I was basically the other group. I mean, I never took a sabbatical before that. I worked for many years. But when I came back, I felt like, you know what, for this transition, maybe it's time after 20 years, take a year off and just interesting, just reflect on things. And I, uh, I did all kind of side businesses, non-educational. I also partnered with a few uh, friends and I did create a educational course, digital course, uh, sold on Udemy. Still, you can go online and see it. What is it? Uh, there's a website called Udemy for online courses. Okay. And I created just like, a, you know, a course about uh, basic tactics of classroom management, things like that. In Hebrew? No, no, in English. 
Wow. After nine years, I was hoping I got some English. Yeah. Did, did it get any traction? Uh, yeah, I mean, since then, uh, thank God, I mean, three years, every month I get like a little check. It's, uh, that is, that's really cool. it's like an independent creature, just have yeah, its own yeah. life. Okay, cool. Uh, right, yeah, so you're, doing yeah. that. you're back in Israel. Where in Israel do you, did you live at that time? In a frat. By okay, so you wake up in a frat, nothing to do. I love it. I could picture you have a little cafe, cappuccino. Right. I wouldn't say nothing to do. I'm not, I'm not a person that has nothing to do. Uh-huh. It always has. Uh, my to-do list is always three times more than I can do in a day. Okay. It has not changed. <laughs> but I did feel like I'm missing education in certain ways. So yeah, I just started to look around what's what's out there. I mean, obviously, I could go back to school and run a school. And that's uh, always needed. It was an option. But I said, let's let's see what 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 else is out there. And then I saw that ad that the Minister of Diaspora first looking to someone to to start, to build a project from scratch with a budget and help with teacher shortage. And I was blown away because as someone who was a principal and a head of school in Houston, Texas, knowing that I don't know too many people that relocate to Houston, Texas just to get a teaching job. In fact, it's uh, last time I calculated about zero people. Could be uh, their spouse is relocating, they happen to be there for whatever reason, but, uh, and just knowing that you, you're so eager to provide your students and the parents are paying such high tuition, you want to really deliver the best product, you want to give them the best you can, and uh, you want to get the best teachers. And sometimes if a teacher leaves, if a teacher is retiring, it's just very, very hard to recruit teachers. And I feel like, wow, if I can really help this kind of global problem on, on a massive scale, that would be an amazing dream. It's kind of an unfinished business. I can wow. help with something I have so much pain. I love it. Now, who in the ministry came up with the idea? They, they Meaning they already had the concept in their head to do this. So someone recognized it there. This is like, you know, a little bit about my pay grade kind of politics. But from what I understand, a couple of years ago, there was an understanding with some of the Israel leaders that after so many years, after 70 plus years, the Jews all over the world gave so much support and money and manpower and lobbying to the state of Israel. It's time to turn around and give back. Israel is not a baby anymore. Now that we solve our problems, not even near. But we have our own capacity at this point to give back, to help our brothers in diaspora. And um, they started uh, mapping needs and funny, in fact, I don't have the exact uh, number, but I'm not, I'll am not probably not be far from saying that in the last decade, with other financial partners, they invested hundreds of millions of dollars in um, in diaspora, in different, different, different places. Amazing. You know, that itself, there's so many little pearls here that I'm discovering. So we had different pieces, but this itself. Oh, boy, that, that, that vision, by the way, that vision. In itself, uh, inspired me because right. I, I I I lived for so many years in, in the states, and I felt like, wow, little Israel, little tiny Israel, can actually do something, give back, and do something for uh, for our brothers in diaspora. That's that's incredible. That's also was. Uh, cool. I guess I'm also interested in part of this podcast is to generate ideas and to be an incubator for ideas. So I'm curious, like where this idea came from, but because you came to it after the idea was already born. But uh, we'll have to save that for another day to clarify it. But someone creative and thoughtful and caring said, let's do this. So that's always interesting to me because I think part of the challenge is just coming up with the idea. You know, once you have an idea, then there's implementation. But uh, identifying good ideas is also me. Yes. I, yeah, I think uh, different people, Naftali Bennett was one of the people and, and others that, that felt like uh, we need to step up and Beautiful. give a hand. It what was, was the interview like? Also. I'm curious. Like, what did they? How did they identify you? Was it hard? Uh, I just want to say one thing. Yeah. Uh, also, they, they partner with a Jewish agency that has a lot of also capacity to to run that project. Just important yeah. to mention. Back to your question, I had to go through a few interviews. I, was, I mean, I was told that maybe 100 people apply for the job. It was, uh, I guess, pretty popular. And uh, they asked me all kind of questions. So, how are you going to go about it? Uh, Why the, do you think uh, they chose you? I think I think I do have a unique combination of someone who, who on the one hand is Israeli, understand not just the language, but really the culture and the the mindset in a way. At the same token, living nine years in the States mm-hmm. makes me to a degree also a little bit American, somehow like a like a hybrid. I I kind right. of get the that culture 
I, I get the mindset from both sides of the ocean, to a degree. An educator, and uh, I mean, being a head of school in the States, as opposed maybe to other places, you know, being a principal in every, I guess, country in the world, you, you deal with what principal deal with, pedagogy and students and discipline. But being a head of school in the United States, which is a private education, there's also some uh, business aspect to it, you know, uh, budget and marketing and, 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 and lay leaders and board. So it gives you a wide perspective that I think set you in a place you can, you need here to do a lot of things. You need to come up with a strategy and marketing and connections. And if you want the full answer, I guess you'll have to ask them. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's great. I can see it. I, I do think you, because you were so deep in the educational process in America and hiring and what that means, and you came from that Israeli perspective. So the truth is, as it relates to your goal of of finding teachers for that, you're, you are quite, uh, so you got this job. And they're like, were there any directions? Or it's like, go solve this problem. And how, what did you do next? How did you go about that? Yeah, it was pretty challenging. Uh, yeah, there was some very hard goal. I was expected to place 50 people year one and 65 year two and, and 80 year three. And it, it seemed like crazy, impossible goal uh, because, because you know, I live in Israel right now and I need to basically build this international project. And how do you even go about it? At the, at the time, it was just me, myself and I. That this was a project. What I did the first month or two, I mean, probably in second weekend in the job, I jumped on an airplane and I just started to reactivate my connections in, in the States and start to meet with people. Just uh, pick the brain. This is, the, this is the, the, the task at hand. This is what I'm thinking. What do you think? Where do you think I can find people? And then I, uh, with the Jewish agency, also met with people in the UK and connected me. One of their people took me around, et cetera, et cetera. Work with Prisma, work with Pages, different organizations. So in about two months, maybe three months, I met in person, this is pre-COVID, probably 120 people and picked a lot of ideas and approaches. And, you know, I hear one idea, I ask, what do you think about that? And then I heard my, uh, the COO, my, my second hand, yeah, Harari, she was, she is a COO. And uh, and together we, we just uh, came up with a strategic plan, how to go about it. What are the key principles? How we think about that? What's the thinking model? where to start, how to go about it. And uh, that was a start. Wonderful. Now, I know your model involves a lot of digital online marketing. Is that your primary recruiting tool? We had a few uh, core principles. On the one hand, from day one, and yes, I am into technology. That is my uh, other love. From day one, I wanted to do things in a way that whenever I want, with a, with a flip of a button, in a way, I can scale. So... In other words, when we started, you, know, you could do everything on paper and pen or Excel spreadsheet or things like that. But I saw that down the road, we're going to have hundreds of people and maybe even more. I don't know if I'm allowed to tell a secret. In the last two and a half years, over 4,000 people applied to us. Whoa. So, so from day one, wow. which we had one, maybe one person, I said, you know, there will be a day we'll have thousands and more. So I want to build everything that's going to be digitize and and that we can really scale so on the other hand we, we don't produce carrots this is education this is really seeing the child and i believe that the way you treat the educator that's how they're going to treat the student if you're going to treat them like a number in a spreadsheet then that's how so i want to give them that personal feel so how do you do scale and also personalize so uh, it was very important to me to balance these two so many of the things that we do and like i mentioned that personalized training is really seeing the individual. There's no generic training. There's no, every teacher has to go through this, through what? We're different people. Uh, we have different strengths and weaknesses. We're going to we're gonna work in different places. A Chumash teacher in second grade school A is not a Chumash teacher in, in uh, second grade school B. The school needs different things. So there's no generic training. That's the aspect that I do a very kind of boutique, personalized seeing the person, but basing everything on, on powerful uh, digital platform so we can do things on really uh, high volume. Wow, that's amazing. That number of 4,000 people have reached out to be engaged in Jewish education. Are you only placing Judaic and Ravrit teachers, or do you place all teachers in Jewish schools? What What's the gather? What's the parameters of who you guys work with? So as a former head of school, I can definitely argue that if you want to have a solid Jewish school, you need teachers from all, all walks of life and all different stuff. Having said that, at least my current funder, the focus is people who can nurture a meaningful Jewish identity, which means 
of course, Kodesh and, and Judaic studies, Hebrew, Jewish history, things like that. Okay. Uh, math and physics are important, but it's, it's, it's correct. Got it. So are you finding that it's becoming more of a challenge or you've really gotten it down and the number, it's becoming easier to find people? What have you found over the years in terms of the trend in this um, area? It's hard to answer with the harder or easier. It's more complicated. And then, you know, the, the elephant in the room that we ignored, a half, half year after I started, a little virus by the name of COVID showed up. <laughs> and that kind of uh, changed everything. I hear. And uh, many of the things that we did before, you know, the work before, after COVID, there was no way. And we all know the kind of unspoken great, great resignation within the education world. And that's a whole discussion, uh, you know, separate discussion to talk about that. We definitely got better and better finding people in general because we try to use uh, sophisticated uh, digital tools to keep optimizing. We, as of now, we use probably close to 200 different channels. Wow. That could be all kind of ads and, and, and social network campaigns and Google searches and websites and newsletters and mailing lists and, and, and Twitter and all kinds of things. And we keep tracking the data and see what works, what doesn't work. Let, okay, let's write this one. Now let's measure it. Work doesn't work. Let's optimize it. We have uh, different tools that track uh, traction to our website and see what parts of our website are clear. We can actually see what people, we don't see the people, obviously, but we <laughs> see how much time they spend in each part. So, oh, this form is not clear. People leave that very quickly. We need to change that form. Let's try this language. Let's measure it. Okay, now it's working. But yeah, but what about that word? We see a lot of people with their mouse kind of uh, hover there. What's wrong there? Oh, maybe a different word. Let's try that. Let's wait three weeks. Oh, it's getting better, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So keep optimizing. And can you're getting better. You're finding it's more. Well, all the time getting better bang on our buck in a way. Amazing. But the the fundamental problems didn't change and actually got worse. So we all know what, why, why why is there a shortage? So, you know, obviously compensation is number one. And that's something that we, ha- we do some work, but fundamentally we cannot help with salaries. Right. And then you have, there's no clear career path. I had a, I had a, I had a friend who, who was an educator in Israel and uh, left left the field, unfortunately. And I, I met with him right when I came back. And I asked him, why do you leave? He said, you know what? People ask me, can you tell us what are you going to do 10 years from now? He said, 10 years from now? Let me do the math. Seventh grade, eighth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, seventh grade. Oh, I got me eighth grade. In other words... <laughs> In other words, nothing. If, right. you, if you don't, if you don't have to be a principal, either you're a teacher. Or that's it. There's no. Right. What, what's my career? What, what's next? And then it's not perceived as a profession. Oh, everyone can teach. Yeah, you just go into the classroom, you close the door, and that's it. It's not a profession. And again, COVID even more because COVID really accelerated so many remote work options. And so uh, people people say, my friend, when when his or her children are sick, they don't have to go to work. They can work from home all good. If I'm a teacher, I always have to show up. Why would I, for, for a low salary, why would I do that? And more and more reasons. And so um, we feel like all the support that we are giving, the, first, the kind of A to Z approach. It's not like you see an ad and good luck. We help you with your CV. We help you with the negotiation. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll try to prepare you for the interview. Then we provide you with the training and the mentoring. So all these uh, touching points is to make the experience, given the challenging circumstances, but easier, smoother. You're not alone. We are here with you. Well, that's really amazing that you have such diverse ways to reach people. I imagine that of the 4,000 people, there are probably a few interesting applications. You know, we're all, I don't know if you followed what happened in America in the beginning of the school year, but an Orthodox school hired a teacher who appeared as a woman but had a history of being a man and it caused this whole ruckus. I won't ask you to opine on the specific issue, but in general, how do you vet the people who sign up and do you have any interesting stories or approaches to dealing with that potential sensitive challenge? Okay, these are two separate questions, which we can talk about two different podcasts, but I'll, I'll, I'll answer quickly. First, like I said, before I uh, go about something, before I build the actual system, I want to come up with a model, with a thinking model. How do I even approach that? So we came up with what we call the triangle, meaning there are three key areas, like clusters of qualities we look into before we vet people. The first one is personality, meaning you could be the best teacher in the world, but if you hate kids, 
I'm not sure that's going to work out. So you need to have a personality of an educator. And that's not an easy thing to define. We can talk about it for hours. But everyone would agree it, it, it includes all kind of lists of soft skills of being warm and inquisitive and team player and uh, humble and, and love to learn and all, all kind of things. So that's a personality thing. The, 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 the second point, kind of cluster of qualities, is content. You could be the best math teacher in the world, but if you've never seen a, a Hebrew letter in your life, you cannot be, I mean, not now, you cannot be a Hebrew teacher. You need to know, you need to master your content. The third aspect is pedagogy. You could be a lovely person, you know, the whole Torah by heart, but you need to know how to go run a class, how to plan it. Now, the way we look at these three areas is personality, I cannot teach. I mean, maybe people who know how to do tshuva, either you have it or you don't. So when we vet you on that um, rubric, you need to really be high on it. We have like a score. You have to be really high on that. Uh, you do a questionnaire? You no, we have a structure interview with all kinds of techniques. That's a whole different okay, uh, we'll leave that. discussion. We want to give away the secrets because people might be hearing. They could... Correct. Very top secret. Ta- yeah. Mossad, Israeli again, top again. Okay. Uh, but, you know, you need to touch on certain uh, points to make sure it's the right personality. Then content can be taught. It's not something you can learn over a week or two. But if you spend a f- couple of years, or maybe if you have some background, we can, you know, uh, help you. It's, it's more manageable. And of the three, pedagogy relatively is the easiest, easier or easiest to, to teach. Meaning if you have the personality, if you know the material, we can teach you how to run a class, how to do discipline and things like that. So when we uh, design our vetting process, it has to touch on all these areas. We have a content check. We want to see your level. We check your pedagogy. We interview you. A couple of interviews. You go through a short interview and a long interview and different checks and all that, all that thing. Now, anecdotes, well, I have uh, probably 4,000 anecdotes, but mm. we had people, uh, I, I, you know, I will say this. We Another thinking model that we developed, which I'm not going to go into many details, but very briefly, we, we look on where to find people like in different circles, okay? Meaning, if I step into the shoes of the recruiter, people recruit without us. It's not like before we were founded, like people didn't create didn't recruit. Of course they do. And how do they recruit people? Everybody has their own methods. And mainly is word of mouth, whatever they do. So potentially you could say, you know what? That's a circle. Circle because that's, I'm saying circle because how far can the recruiter reach out? How, how, how far can they extend their hands, so to speak? So we can step into that circle and tell these people, listen, why don't you give us all the CVs that you have? Because not every head of school or principal Knows how to vet people. It's a, it's a chokba. Some are good in budgets. Some are good in, in, in pedagogy. Some are good in, in leadership. Some are good in marketing. You can't be good at all. And therefore, you're the highest paid job in the school, naturally. And in order to fill out three positions, you go over 30 CVs and you, you watch four or five models and then you, and you spend all these hours, very expensive hours. If that's not something that you're good at, you may find yourself a year later recruiting all over again. That's a huge, Loss of resources. We do it all day long. That's what we do. We vet people. So give us the stack of paper. We'll do it for you. And we'll recommend the top, whatever, the top three that we think are the best. That's exciting because you can really help a lot of schools. The downside, we're not really addressing the the shortage, the pipeline. This is just with existing. So we have the second circle, which is a, a larger one. Now we can extend your hands beyond your reach because with our resources in our database, we have a huge growing every day full of people that you can ever, we, we, we can advertise in, in Melbourne and London and St. Louis and Denver and New York and wherever you want. By the way, I go back to your question. When I was interviewed for the job, they, they told me, so what are you going to do? You're going to just play musical chairs? So every placement is going to be a vacancy? And what's the, what's the plan here? Uh, at the time, I answered whatever I answered. I guess it was a good one. I was hired. But now I can tell you that... We come across many people who are educators, but for whatever reason, can't find the right job. And the right job meaning they can have certain skills that are wonderful skills, but wherever they live, it's not needed. Or, um, you know, they can go on a job board, Google, okay, I'm looking for, and they're going to see a list, but they don't know the place, they don't know the vibe, they don't know the values. We are doing site visits. We're profiling the place. We're working with the, with the heads. So we have 
such a deep understanding of the place, we're in a much better position to place you with the right fit and then, of course, support you and all of that. I like to look at it, the metaphor I like to use is Waze. What's, what's nice about Waze? Waze is not solving the pro- traffic problem. It's not adding drivers. It's not making new roads. It's optimizing resources. Let's take all the drivers and all the roads and give everyone the optimal way to get from point A to point B. That's what mm-hmm. I do with the second circle. I take all the educators that come my way and position that I have, and I try to find them the best, um, the best match. Then there's the third circle. People are not even educators. This is like the Uber. Now I'm adding new drivers. And that's a whole uh, different strategy, how to find these people, how to train them, how to support them. Very, very different. The last piece I will say, within the first circle, over time, we discovered a hidden gem that became an amazing treasure and uh, helped many, many schools find talent. We call it the 1B, meaning these are people that are within the reach of the recruiter, but for whatever reason, people do not pay attention to them. It could be a teacher assistant that no one kind of recognized that could be actually a teacher or a parent serving pizza for lunch or a board member or someone just in the neighborhood who, with the right support and training and help, can become an educator. The wonderful thing about this group, it's an amazing ROI, return on investment. No relocation is needed. No onboarding needs. They know the school. Right. They know the mission. They know It's amazing. And once we discover that, we start going to school and say, hey, look around. Is there anyone... Yeah, you know what? Now that you're saying, we have this teacher assistant that, but we never know. Yeah, we have the partners. We have the expertise. We'll make them teachers. I remember walking in a school in Jewish school in California. I'm going to be more specific. And I'm uh, walking around and uh, they're showing me the school. And I see this uh, second grade general study teacher. A woman covers her hair. So I assume she's Orthodox. And we're kind of talking about what she does and all that. And I say, listen, would be a Judaic study teacher, would that something that interests you? Said, oh, you know what? For many years, I really want to do that. I just didn't know how to go about it. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I have the training. I have the, you have the background. Yep. Uh, background checks for criminal history or how do you address people who really shouldn't be in education? Yeah. So that also goes to the other question you asked me and I didn't answer. Yeah. You know, different sensitive topics and who is the right fit and all that. At the end of the day, I'm not the employer. I'm just vetting people and I'm recommending them. The person who is going to pay their salary and hire them is the institution. And therefore, I do have a pretty rich and diverse group of people that can fit different. You know, we work with Orthodox schools and with conservative and reform and unaffiliated and community schools and basically any kind of shape and size. But different schools have different rules and different things that are acceptable. So we leave it to the school to decide. It's not our job to decide. If you're, if you kind of, if we can check those boxes of your personality, content, pedagogy, it's for the employer to decide. I assume you meet them uh-huh. all uh-huh. and you... So so background checks, originally we plan to do that and we do check things, but you know, then you get into question of uh, of liability and all that. Anyway, schools want to do it themselves. So we right. felt like Smart. this money that eventually we did pay for background checks and did it, we felt like it's not uh, well spent because the school going to do it anyway. Right, it's true. That's not a good added value for our service. Okay, cool. Certainly, this is such a remarkable project you're doing, and the way you're going about it, it's it's uh, really inspiring to me, I have to be honest. Thank you. Are there any vignettes, like a story of a particular person that you that you placed that you think would be a great example of the power of what you're providing? So going back to our model, we place educators from all the circles, the one, the twos, the threes, but we always very moved by the threes. These are people many times, but they have a career. And they went do different things and they come to us, could be five years, 10 or 15 years into their career. They could be a nurse. We once had a lawyer. Uh, the most, when a lawyer, you know, mm-hmm. we educators all feel like, oh, we pay so little, those lawyers, those doctors. And we had a few. When a lawyer comes to you and tells you, listen, yes, I'm making a nice salary, and, but I'm missing the meaning. I'm missing to do something impactful, touching souls. We had a few of those. And, and one of them we actually placed to take a lawyer. And and place them in a in a school that's always very meaningful. Also, many times that's what I learned. People who and that's not a secret. People who are coming for a career as an educator to make like a nice living. It's not always the best the best choice. But I find more and more, and that's in an interesting way. Another uh, I think outcome of COVID. I think COVID kind of shook the world. People take 
when their life are being shaken, they take it to different directions. But it did make many people kind of uh, reconsider what's next, what's what this all about, etc. And some people, in certain ways, found found their ways to us and said, listen, I just want to do something meaningful. I like my job. It's all good, but it's technical. I want to influence the next generation. I want to be part of building something really remarkable, unique. And for those, we, I mean, we work hard for everyone, but for people like that, we do the extra mile, try and place them because we know that eventually education is, 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 is a calling. If you do not, if you're not coming for the calling, for the impact, it goes back to the personality. That's not going to, it's not going to cut it. And so uh, also we feel like a lot of people are passionate about education, but because all these obstacles, they just say, you know what, I'm not interested. And, and we feel like in many cases, you know, going back to the second circle, those who are already educators, many times when we work with them, we realize if we didn't help them find the right job, they were already considering leaving education. So every business owner knows it's easier to retain your customers than getting a new customer. So are we really paying attention enough just to keep the talent educator we do have? Yes, we need more. But are we? Because I'm not sure about that. Because people are leaving the field. And we try to kind of work on both. Beautiful. But can you address generally the cost in terms of uh, how you feel it's a value proposition for the state of Israel? I don't uh, mean politically. I mean in terms of like this organization. It's a funded I it's think a funded the state of Israel, I mean overall, that's a, that's a kind of a general term. But the state of Israel genuinely feels like an interest to invest without any uh, ulterior motive. They want to help. This question is a little more sensitive, but I hope you'll explore it as you're comfortable with. In terms of the bang for buck, you have a budget of X number of dollars and you've placed Y number of teachers and potentially could place Y number further. You know, how would you address the economics of your project? And is it something that you feel is a healthy balance of cost per placement? I want to say something quickly that you didn't ask me, but it's going to be a good introduction to my answer. When we started, we were considering should we charge for the service or not? Yes, we are funded and our, our overhead is, is fully covered. The problem is, and we've seen it over and over again, we, we think we're doing a really high quality job and we definitely bring our heart and soul into the work, do the best we can. The problem is human psychology is whatever is free is cheap, no matter how high quality it is. And we just wanted to start and, and build our name. So we actually did start free, but we do, we, we keep asking ourselves, not, not to make money of it, but Will it help schools if we charge them? Maybe take that money and invest back in the school, but it will be perceived as a more kind of prestigious thing. Now, to answer your question, again, as a head of school, I can tell you, uh, I will not forget. One day before school school started, a few years ago when I was ahead, and a parent came. It was like a meet-the-teacher, uh, kind of after meet-the-teacher activity. And that parent came, and uh, something didn't look right in their eyes. I'll keep it vague. And this is like 12 hours before the school year starts, right? And then the person was upset about something and took her uh, three children and left the school. And as a private school, that meant that uh, 30, 40, $50,000 just evaporated from, from my budget on the spot. Now, I gave contracts months ago, so the expenses are set, and now the income all, all of a sudden. So in other words, teachers are the key essential part of any school. Because you are selling people. You're not selling smart boards or curriculums or even homage. You're selling the educators. I always used to say, if you have the right people, you can have the the, the, the poorest budget and the, uh, no books. The magic will happen. But if you're going to have the most innovative, top-notch facility and everything and poor teachers, nothing will happen. So I feel like investing in teachers, let alone the impact and the, and the sahar, you know, for the world to come, but in, in, in for this world, you're going to, from a customer perspective, you're serving the parents, you're going to lose. And also, a bad teacher can create a bad, like, negativity and, and, and you know, affect morale. So maybe other teacher can also leave. And then next year, you have to record all over again, which is, again, interviews. So now you're wasting your time. So if you really do the math, and I actually read a research about that, which said that an average employee, and I think it's the same for teachers, if you don't know how to recruit well, it's going to cost you four times of their salary. So think what's an average salary of a teacher, four times, 
if we ever charge, we're not going to charge 4,000 average salary. I think, uh, whatever, uh, we're not there yet, but uh, I think if, if you do the math, you want to invest everything you have in hiring the right people. It's a key for everything. Wow. So I think you're basically answering that what it's costing you per person is money well spent. I think so. I think we definitely, uh, one of the things we did, again, that's a whole different, but we, we use a lot of automations. By now we have 60 something automations that do a lot of work. Everything that a, a robot can do, reminding, sending emails, sending the Zoom, filing, recording, uh, everything. We do what, what we need human beings, the, the interview, the, the, the personal. Mm -hmm. And by that, we're saving a lot of money. That's where we've been very uh, efficient in our budget. Uh, in fact, without getting into, into numbers, I would say in general, we, in the first three years, we used only 50% of the budget that was allocated uh, wow. originally. This is getting um, wilder by the minute. That's unbelievable. And you, have you surpassed your goals of placement? Of we 50, overachieved. Yeah, yeah. so wow. uh, as I said, that we in the last two and a half years, we placed over 200 people. Wow. And um, with 50% of the budget. Amazing. And of those 200, how many are still teaching? So, you know, our, our first, we, we don't have a lot of data because, you know, we place for a full year and they, they actually started following school year. So we, now we're in our third year. So our major cohort is now just in their uh, second year. I think we're at about 90 something percent of amazing. people who, uh, That's who uh, continued. Thank Listen, we all about data. We do, we do surveys with our schools and teachers and mentors twice a year and keep, it's all about measuring, measuring, processing, optimizing. Measuring again, processing, optimizing, and so forth. Amazing. Okay, and the final question that I ask all my guests, so take a moment to uh, think about it is, if you got an extra million dollars, which is about 3 million shekel, or today 3.2 million shekel, I believe, what would you spend it on to really impact Chinuch either through talent educators or in general? What do you see that million dollars could really have impact on? So I have two answers. Is that uh, legal? Is that as okay? As long as, yeah, no problems. I'll say that. So my first uh, answer is I'll take that $1 million and add it to the $20 billion endowment I want to raise. And uh, taking 5% every year, I'd like to double salaries for all teachers across the board and really make, make sure that Jewish education is sustainable for, for uh, you know, forever. Beautiful. Until I get that. I mean, I, I have the 20 and I have the dollars. I just <laughs> need the billion. I think I would, something I have, I started doing even without that kind of money, but uh, I would try to see what can extra money for unique bonuses and salaries uh, can help to bring new people to the field. Meaning, <laughs> those who don't have the, the passion or make these seven-digit salaries, I'm not going to help them. But uh, I do think with a relatively meaningful bonuses, one of the ideas we had, by the way, is what if we give out $18,000 over three years, 5K year one, 6K year two, 7K year, year three, you know, just like the word, the number 18. And so uh, uh, can we bring people that otherwise on the fence, not sure, and this is going to be a nice push to, on the one hand, from a fundraising perspective, it's not a lot of money. On the other hand, for teachers, it's meaningful. It's not changing your life, but yeah. it's, it's a nice yeah, 10 it's a nice, boost. Yeah. It's a nice boost, right. Yeah. I, would, I would invest right now, we are only able to fund training and mentorship for one year and our candidates that all in place come back to us after a year and saying, what? Now you're going to leave us? It's such an amazing experience. We need just one more year. Come on. I would definitely use our money to give them. I do believe that for a teacher to kind of really click in, be a master teacher, you need three years of mentorship, of trying. Of... Once you got support for three years, if you didn't get after three years, I mean, no offense to anyone. I don't know. But if three years, you got all the support you need, by that time, it's going to click in. Beautiful. So I'll probably use it for this and for some salaries. And uh, Beautiful. Yeah. Okay, this was such an amazing meeting. How do people, I'm sure there are so many lawyers who are wondering how they could uh, go into education. So if you're a lawyer out there and you want to get into education or you're a school that's looking to hire that lawyer, how could they get in touch with you? All the lawyers, I'm telling you, enough with the fighting. Stop suing people. I'm, I'm offering you the best job in the world, full of uh, sweetness and honey, county Good. Jewish kids. The way to do it, by the way, even if you're not a lawyer, we'll take you. So Okay, we'll uh, keep that in mind. Yeah, we have a website, talenteducators.org, one word, talenteducators.org. Go to the website, everything is there. 
You can also email us. That's office at tanayuki.org. And we would love to talk to you and help you get the best experience uh, out there. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was great talking to you across the, the pond of the Atlantic Ocean. And it's great to meet someone who's using innovation to help Claudius Israel in such a meaningful way. Thank you, Rabbi Carmel. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, there it is. Isn't Rabbi Carmel's program just amazing? The innovation, the way he's utilizing technology, social media, and the fact that he's been able to get so many placed Jewish educators at half the budget and be able to engage people who may not have thought of going into Jewish education. I love the innovation, and I love the way he's using professional innovation that is not limited to education in order to solve the problem of education. There are so many wonderful resources out there in terms of the way he's utilizing surveying, profiling, uh, technological advancements to identify, support, and follow up with his you know, clients and his educators. And I think there are definitely people listening to this whose clientele that would not speak to. People who either don't use the computer so much, who aren't in social media, uh, and that's fine. And that's, um, that's not really my point. My point isn't the specific initiative that he's doing, but it's the creativity. It's the thinking outside of the box. It's the reaching out of your immediate lane and saying, what could we bring from the broader professional community to the educational space that could help solve problems? And that takes creativity and broad thinking, and frankly, it takes some guts to be able to pull that off. It takes funding. It takes a lot of pieces. But when it's done, it's an amazing way to solve problems and really impact Claudius in a meaningful way. So I hope we think of this either, if it benefits you directly, call a kavod, reach out to talent educators. But if it doesn't, and you say, well, that's really not my community. That's not really my target audience. But I hope you could take inspiration from what he's doing and say, how would this look in my community, if I was trying to leverage the opportunities that exist for me to reach out or to profile or to engage at another level, the target people that I'm looking for. So what would that look like? I almost feel like there would be value in bringing someone like Rabbi Aroni Carmel to Lakewood and plop him down for a month and say, you know, Hank, you know, you'd have to work on his dress code a little bit, but uh, plop him down and say, hang out at the coffee machine, get to know the guys talk to people, and help us figure out how to identify and motivate and pull out potential educators from this mass pool of individuals. And what I wonder what he would come up with. And so if you're listening to this and you have that potential, you think that way, then think of a problem in Jewish education and take a moment to think out of the box and say, okay, what could we possibly do to solve this problem? And um, if you do that, I could tell you that I would feel very accomplished in this podcast for that experience alone. Wishing you a wonderful day. Thank you to everyone who's sharing, reviewing, and uh, giving encouragement to our podcast. Questions, comments, and guest referrals are always appreciated at Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. This is your Achmiel Garfield wishing you a wonderful day.